understand Spanish, don't worry, you can practice a little bit with me. I invite you to listen to my show, Contragolpe. Credibility, facts, analysis, debate, and intense dialogue. Contragolpe, part of the new and exciting lineup, Wednesday nights. This is Sean Casey O'Brien from KPFK's Access Unlimited, the disability awareness show for people born in the know or those that arrive there accidentally. Join Professor Henry Slucky, Jolie Mason, and myself every Tuesday at 2 on KPFK's Access Unlimited, 90.7 FM. Till then. Yo, this is Immortal Technique. Right now you're listening to KPFK 90.7 Los Angeles. Revolutionary commentary. You know what it is. KPFK bringing you the realness. Peace. Hall of streets, stay flooded in white powder. Good afternoon, KPFK listeners. This is Here in the City. Today is January 10th, 2011. I'm Sarah Harris. We are here most Mondays on KPFK, bringing you radio realities from the urban landscape and profiles of people working toward creative social change in the city. On the program today, we visit with a psychologist who's committed to providing access to services for traumatized soldiers returning from Afghanistan. Unlike in Vietnam, where everybody knew someone who was serving, when our soldiers come back, often they come back into a community and nobody has a clue of what they've been through. And we preview a new one-woman show about switching gender in search of a greater understanding of the life of men. I just started passing. I was just scratching the surface of the male experience. I needed to go further. Or I could quit now and call it a day and learn absolutely nothing. Or go forward and maybe I might just learn something and maybe it might alter my life. But first, the news. Lawmakers and President Obama observed a moment of silence today for those dead and injured following Saturday's brutal shooting at a shopping mall in Tucson, Arizona. Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords remains in critical condition at University Medical Center in Tucson. Six people, including a nine-year-old girl and a federal judge, have died. The New York Times obituary for Judge John Roll explains that the judge and his wife were given protection by federal marshals in 2009 when Judge Roll was hearing a $32 million legal complaint brought by Mexican citizens against an Arizona rancher accused of civil rights abuses. The suit claimed that the ranch was illegally holding people at gunpoint as they crossed his lands and that he then turned them over to the U.S. Border Patrol. Judge Roll ruled that the lawsuit could go forward and began to receive death threats. The judge declined to press charges at the recommendation of the Marshal Service. The confirmed shooter in the Tucson slang, Jared Lee Loeffner, is in custody and is expected to face a judge today. Former GOP Congressman Tom DeLay was found guilty of money laundering and conspiracy today in federal court. DeLay was sentenced to three years in prison for conspiring to illegally funnel $190,000 in corporate campaign donations to Republican candidates for the Texas legislature. He was given 10 years probation and faces a five-year prison sentence if he violates that probation. DeLay will remain free on bond pending his appeal. 
and in local news, California Governor Jerry Brown announced over the weekend that he will cut $6.4 million from his own office's budget. Today, the governor proposed a spending plan aimed at closing California's $28 billion budget shortfall. Over the next 18 months, the plan will roll back social services and increase fees for low-income medical care. It will marginally also increase spending for the failing and overcrowded California Department of Corrections. You're listening to Here in the City on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, and 99.5 FM Ridgecrest, China Lake. An archive of our show is available at hereinthecity.org. I'm Sarah Harris. As the U.S. approaches a decade of warfare and occupation in Afghanistan, more and more servicemen and women are coming back from deployment with post-traumatic stress disorder. Many of those with the condition go undiagnosed. According to the Department of Veterans Affairs, those more likely to develop PTSD are service women and soldiers of color, servicemen and women with existing mental health problems, and returning soldiers who have little support from family and friends. Here in the city, producer Luis Sierra Campos spoke to a doctor who has made it her work to offer better mental health outreach and services to soldiers returning from combat with post-traumatic stress disorder. As troops return from Afghanistan into civilian life, many families of service men and women see their loved ones exhibiting anxiety, depression, anger, and self-destructive behaviors, all symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. I sat down with Dr. Judith Broder, who leads the Soldiers Project, a group of licensed mental health professionals who offer free psychological treatment to military service members, active duty, National Guards, reserves, and veterans who have served or who expect to serve in conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan. The services are completely free and they are extended to their families, gay and lesbian partners, and longtime unmarried heterosexual couples that otherwise are excluded from the Veterans Affairs Medical Services. Here's Dr. Broder explaining what PTSD is like. The way post-traumatic stress disorder looks varies. There are sort of two different arms of it. One has to do with withdrawal and isolation. So someone coming back it may be so um, freaked out by being in ordinary life here that what he or she does is withdraws, stays in, I'm gonna just say he in this instance, stays in his room, um, doesn't socialize, when he is with his family, is very withdrawn. The families call it the thousand yard stare they look as if they're somewhere else, and in their minds, they are somewhere else. Another aspect of post-traumatic stress is being in a hyper-alert state, 
this is what it takes to survive in combat. Uh, as humans, we don't have an on and off switch. So that if you've been in a situation where you've had, had to be in hyper alert virtually 24 seven, when you get back here, you can't just turn it off. So that the way that looks like is being extremely reactive to loud noises, to certain sights and smells that remind them of um, what they experienced in Iraq or Afghanistan and may throw them back into, um, we call them triggers. These triggers lead to self-medicating with drugs and alcohol to diminish the memories of their experience in military combat. Aggressive behaviors can also lead to troubles with the law. The most dramatic and horrific effect of an un untreated post-traumatic stress disorder is suicide. Um, another effect, unfortunately, is also homicide. Um, other terrible effects are domestic violence, um, criminal activities. On a larger perspective, the untold effects have to do with passing on to children the effects of this trauma because the mother or father who's been traumatized in this way and then frightens his or her child or withdraws or isn't available, that little boy is going to carry with him some kind of secondary trauma that he doesn't have the words for, he doesn't know to, how to make sense of it. And as a grown-up, it can be passed on to the next generation. We know this from all the studies of Holocaust survivors and their children. And again, one of my motivations was to try to intervene early enough so this intergenerational passing on of trauma could be interrupted. Acknowledging the changes in service men and women after they have returned home is the first step in recovery, says Dr. Broder. Unlike in Vietnam, where everybody knew someone who was serving, when our soldiers come back, often they come back into a community and nobody has a clue of what they've been through. Nor, and their families are isolated, too, because... Nobody knows what the wives are going through or the kids are going through. So any kind of action that says, I see you, you're part of us, let me try to help in any way, is at least a start. How long is the treatment? The people who come into the Soldiers Project for treatment, there's a wide range of how long it takes. There are some people for whom... They need only three or four sessions to kind of regain their own resiliency, which was there in the first place, but they've gotten off track. And we can help them fairly quickly get back on track and they can use what they already have. There are others who are more severely injured and they may need months or months or years. We have people in treatment for a number of years. It's another asset of our program is that we have no limitation on the number of sessions. So it isn't time limited. 
And everyone is seen at least once a week. Some people are seen two or three times a week if they're in a crisis. We have the flexibility um, that a big bureaucracy doesn't have. And our treatments are individualized. So if it's a family, we can see the parents, we can see the kids, we can see the couple, we can see them individually. So there's lots of flexibility that we can provide that I think can't be provided in a big bureaucratic system. How is your project different and why would a soldier come to the soldiers project versus the VA? The VA is an enormous bureaucracy and they provide all kinds of services that we at the Soldiers Project cannot provide. But because it's a bureaucracy, it is not that easy to access treatment. Uh, For us, literally all it takes is a phone call and within a day or two, the person can be in a therapist's private office. For many with post-traumatic stress disorder, the experience of traveling to the Los Angeles Veterans Administration building can be overwhelming. The rooms are big, the sounds are loud, so the options to see a therapist in a private office makes it easy to seek treatment. But Dr. Broder encourages veterans to go to the VA facilities even so. I want to say, however, that one of the things that we make sure we do is that anyone who comes to us We try to encourage them to at least go to the VA to sign up for their services, even if they don't want their mental health services there, because they're entitled to all kinds of medical services that if they don't get in there, they won't have access to, and they deserve to get those services. The other thing about the VA is that Um, they require the soldier, him or herself, to be the point person. They have to go and sign in. At least half our calls are from family members who, unless they can persuade their soldier to sign in, can't get the services at the VA. Uh, so, So since we don't require anything except someone saying, I need your help, it's we can provide help to people that otherwise would be excluded. Similarly, with um, gay or lesbian couples or longtime heterosexual partners who aren't married, all of those people are excluded from the VA system. So in some way, my idea about the Soldiers Project was not only to make it easy, but to create a safety net for those who otherwise would fall through the cracks and not get the help they need. And that's what the Soldiers Project is ultimately about, creating equal opportunities for service men and women and their loved ones to seek treatment together without fear of social stigma. For Here in the City, I'm Luis Sierra Campos.
And Luis's interview with Dr. Broder is the first in a two-part series about soldiers affected with PTSD on here in the city. You can find out more about The Soldiers Project online at thesoldiersproject.org. You can also call toll-free at 877-576-5343. You're listening to Here in the City on KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara on kpfk.org. And you can find an archive of our show at Here in the City. That's H-E-A-R in the city.org. I'm Sarah Harris. We'll be right back. going to talk about some theater. Usually we have Jesse Lerner here doing the arts and music and film, but today it's me, and we're going to visit Los Angeles author Helly Lee, who's 1.5 generation Korean American. Several years ago, Helly spent two harrowing years in China and in Seoul planning to help her mother's family defect from North Korea. She wrote a best-selling book about the experience called In the Absence of Sun, as well as a memoir of her family's life during the Korean War called Still Life with Rice, a tribute to her grandmother. Helly's latest undertaking is a one-woman theater performance that mixes documentary and fiction video about her journey to present herself as a man. Macho Like Me opens this week in West Hollywood, at the Coast Playhouse. I visited a rehearsal to talk with Helly Lee about her show. Let me just cut to the chase. I'm 39, unmarried, and have Korean parents. My life is a living hell. My parents have become so frantic about my advancing age and lack of appropriate suitors that they're secretly plotting to get me a husband. I find out they're mass mailing my headshot to their friends and their friends' friends, even all the way back to Korea. (laughs) Never mind the photo was taken back when I was 25, (laughs) stress-free, wrinkle-free, and still perky. In the Bible, Adam and Eve got married and have children. You are not 20 or 30s. You are become a 40s. You have to marry soon. Yeah, that's right. You have to marry right away. See what I mean? Right time, right chance, right opportunity. Take it. You wait too long to get your husband. Go find one right away. Then you don't have to worry about when your car break down. You just ride at home. Right? Yeah, right. Harry, <laughs> mom and I praying for you every day. Yeah, I need the grandchildren. When the prospective husbands come sniffing around, my parents are thrilled. Thank God I'm married because that, you know, that's all they talk about. But that's what my show is also about. You know, when I did this, I was not married. Um, that was the center focus of their lives, is getting their children married, especially their daughters, because without marriage, what are we? True story. During the rescue, I'm standing at the border of China, staring across into North Korea, I see my uncle and his family. They look starved in the clothes and rags. I'm thinking, 
How are we gonna get them out of this horrible country? There are border guards with rifles ready to shoot anyone trying to escape. Just then, from across the river, I hear, is Helly married? <laughs> no, she hasn't married yet, my father announces to everyone. And so that frustration, that angst and anger um, was percolating and building up. And I thought, damn, I'm going to be a guy. Why the hell not? You know, if I could rescue nine people from North Korea, I could certainly become a man. So that's what I did. And I'm so glad I did it. So much of your writing embraces the realm of what it is to be a Korean woman in the United States with such a rich history. And just to be in this piece, which is about becoming a man, in what way is it really about being an Asian man in the United States? It started off as an Asian man piece because in my culture, you know, men... I thought men definitely had it better. You know, they inherit all the money, they inherit the name, they don't have to wash a dish in the house, at least in my family they don't. Um, they get all these privileges and benefits, and they didn't even have to earn them. Why can I have been born a male? If I were a man, my worth would not be based upon marital status, but what I have achieved. If I were a man, no one, not parents, not boyfriends, not society would ever impose limits on me. Life would be so sweet. Then it hits me. I'll become a man. Oh, why not? Why not become a man? If I can rescue nine people from North Korea, I could certainly become a man. Yes, I'm really going to do it. I'm gonna cut my hair, change my clothes, and live as a guy. It's going to be awesome! <laughs> but I have to tell you, passing was not as easy as I had originally thought. I was very cocky about the idea. I thought, once I cut my hair, put a footie inside my pants, change into men's clothes, it was gonna be bang, 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 no problem. But the process of transforming from a female to a male was quite um, a study. It took me a while to master the transformation. And once I transformed, I went from a process of be being heli to a um, very masculine looking woman to someone who was very androgynous, who was neither man or woman. I was, I, literally walk that gender line. And then um, I transform from someone who's very genderless to someone who is a very young looking gay guy. And then eventually I just passed as a guy, a straight guy. I decide that Harry will be a young 25 year old documentary filmmaker because it's a good way to explain the camera following me around. <laughs> Why 25? I assure you it isn't for vanity. As a guy, I'm small, and without facial hair, I look pubescent. <laughs> Hi. Luckily, I'm an Asian guy. I can get away with not having a five o'clock shadow. <laughs> so don't I look more like a guy with my yeah. glasses on? Yeah, you do. But you know, I didn't want the nerdy effect. I wanted to go for like a cool guy. 
Ain't happening. <laughs> but he isn't a total lost cause. He's a diamond in the rough. With a little TLC, I believe that Harry could come into his manhood. And my story unravels and unfolds and takes twists and turns over six months. Originally, I was only supposed to do it for about 10 weeks. I thought I could do it, get in, prove my point that men have a better ha ha ha, and then get out of it and nail myself back on that cross as a martyr, as a female martyr. But as I approached the 10 week mark, I realized, wow, this is really hard. I just started passing. I was just scratching the surface of the male experience. I needed to go further, or I could quit now and call it a day and learn absolutely nothing, or um, go forward and maybe I might just learn something and maybe it might alter my life. So I bit the bullet and I decided to go forward. And what did you do? What was the act that you performed? What was the thing that sort of made you physically and psychologically change? The thing that I learned that allowed me to pass was that men don't move very much, nor do they express themselves with their bodies, their hands, their eyes, their mouth. And so once I learned to tone everything down, um, talk less, move less, show less facial expression, the more I started to pass as a guy. It was, and the less I cared about what I looked like, the more believable I became. And in terms of what you looked like, you went through quite a few things that appeared I was not an attractive show. guy. I have to admit that, and that's, that very much hurt my ego. But you cut your hair. I cut my hair, and I had you know hair down to my lower back, and I cut it off um, to about an inch buzz. And, um, and your voice? I had, the voice was the most difficult. I was thinking about what medical options there were out there, but then I didn't want to go that route because it would totally alter who I was. And there are two men who figure really prominently in your story, your father being one of them, and David Hyun, mm -hmm. who's an architect mm -hmm. of, uh, he designed Little Tokyo, in right. the, the tower in Little Tokyo uh, in Los Angeles. Am I right in understanding that there are certain sort of inspiration for you in doing this project and sort of underpinning why you did it and what it means? Well, this project is dedicated to my father um, and my brother. All the projects that I write about happen to center around women and their issues. This is the first project that I get to do about men, and it's refreshing for me. And I, you know, I dedicate it to my father, my brother. Um, I also dedicate it to David Hen, who in my journey was my mentor and my surrogate father. He was 83. He was a retired architect. Very successful, very powerful and rich at a time in his life when he was working. Now he's retired, he's older. Hello? Hi, David, this is H. Oh, come on in, H. This is David Hyun, a retired architect. At the age of 83, David wants to use his remaining time to write his memoir. A memoir, personal stuff. I want the job so badly. Plus, Spending time with a mature man who has less testosterone surging through his body sounds like a dream. He felt like he has lost his masculinity. He has lost the ability to, um, to make money, 
to um, romance his wife, to um, to have his community rally around him and stuff like that. And it's and so in his retiring years in '83, he was trying to find his manhood again. And I think that's why we became such good friends is because he was trying to recapture his manhood, and I was simply just trying to find my manhood. And he trusted me and he embraced me because at the age of 83 he had spent most of his life working that he didn't have a network of friends like his wife did so I became his best friend and all of that put together um, it'll open dialogue between men and women couples between mother and son father and son Um, who's your audience who do you hope will come and see your show the wonderful thing about Macho Like Me is the show is, the audience is everybody. It's not just for one group. You know, um, I, sh- I demoed it in, at a senior citizen home. I took it to high schools and colleges just to test it out. I took it to um, ethnic organizations, and everybody got it. I was so surprised. In fact, I thought it was a drama. And then I started reading from the script, and people kept laughing at the same places, and people kept laughing more and more, and I thought, my God, this is the comedy. Well, Helili, thank you very much for inviting us to your rehearsal on the eve of your premiere tour. Thank Thank you. you. Enjoy. Macho Like Me opens this Friday at the Coast Playhouse in West Hollywood. We'll have more details on our Facebook page here in the city and at our website hereinthecity.org. That's H-E-A-R in the city.org. And that is it for Here in the City. We'll be back next week with more radio realities from the urban landscape. Thanks to Luis Sierra Campos, Jesse Lerner, Sabiha Khan, Rachel Salmon for web production, and to D'Angelo for engineering the show. I'm Sarah Harris. Deadline LA is up next. Peace. Go, Harrison! Stand up and be counted, show the world that you're a man. Stand up and be counted, go with the cute bucks plan. Oh my god, shut the f*** up. If you can put on a Ku Klux Klan costume because you're very afraid, you put on the costume you feel strong. But you might not normally put it on if you felt safe and secure in your own life. So we're now seeing the big costume party come back. It's called the Tea Party. Harrison, Harrison. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday at 3, here on 90.7 KPFK. Breakbeats and Rhymes Radio. Invasion. Hosted by Rebels to the Grave. Every late Saturday night from 2 to 4 a.m.